Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, media coverage of Nicola Bully causes concern. Zuck follows Musk launching paid verifications, but are those little blue ticks making it any easier to know who's who? And is China's relationship with Disney warming up? We catch up on the latest gossip from Hollywood. Plus, we're tracking fabulous and fascinating telly deals in the media quiz. And that's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, Eurosport and BT Sport will disappear from UK TVs. BT and US media giant Warner Brothers Discovery, who formed a multi-billion pay TV sports joint venture, have scrapped their separate outlets, bringing their sports output together under a master brand, TNT Sports, which means the Eurovision name will be uh, replaced here in the UK, something that's been around since, I think, 1989. Political journalist Christopher Hope, I think that's Chopper, is set to leave The Telegraph for GB News after almost 20 years. The TV outlets zoomed in on politics over recent weeks, with MP Jacob Rees-Mogg taking up a weeknight show. GB News editorial director Michael Booker warned, watch out Westminster. And in other media moves, Max Cutler, Spotify's head of talk, creator content and partnerships, he's the guy behind big deals including Joe Rogan, is leaving the company to start a new venture. He promises to share more details soon. But now to today's show, I've got two media aficionados here to tackle the major headlines. First up is broadcaster, producer and podcaster extraordinaire, Jamie East. Jamie, how have you been? I've been really good, thank you. Busy, you know, spinning plates like all of us are probably in, in podcast land, but yeah, all good. What's going on? What, what's on those plates? We're in what we call our pilot season at the moment. It's very easy to get kind of like wrapped up in new ideas and, and you get lost and I don't, I'm sure everybody's the same. You end up down creative rabbit holes and wormholes where nothing really ever gets done. So we, we're trying to kind of limit ourselves to like maybe two months, two or three months of the year where all of the ideas that we have throughout the year, we go, okay, right, let's make one and see what it sounds like. And I was listening with interest to the Pod Pod episode where they interviewed the lady in charge of the Guardian uh, podcast, where they revealed that they they piloted, I think, their culture podcast twenty nine times. Yes, what a luxury! What a luxury! And we wonder, and we wonder why they keep asking for money every time I look at a uh, look at an article. Uh, we do not pilot twenty nine times. We do two, maybe three, and if it's not if it's not sailing by then, chances are there's something wrong with the idea in the first place. I think so. I did see that, and I just thought, oh, geez, what a faff! I mean, great if you've got the time. What a waste of money. I'm sorry, but like I say, if if if, if you're piloting something 29 times, there is something intrinsically wrong with the original idea. 
Also with us is TV and radio consultant Paul Robinson. Have you piloted anything 29 times? I don't think so. I think after 29 times I'd lose the will to live. But uh, I have um, <laughs> just launched a TV channel in Africa, which was uh, we did in 29 days, which was a bit of a, a scramble because uh, we had to do a lot of the work over Christmas New Year with a Chinese company who, of course, then on um, Chinese New Year. But we got it launched on the 31st of January, just to 19 million paying subscribers in, in South Africa. Africa and uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So that was all right, but not 29 times. It was first taken, off you go. So that's been keeping you busy. Also, here you've been to LA recently. What you've been up to there? Yeah, I was in LA a couple of weeks ago um, for a company summit discussing um, animation production. And uh, also, we're doing some interesting stuff with ChatGPT. Ah, interesting. Okay, well, maybe we'll talk about that a bit later. We'll be visiting uh, Hollywood a little later on in the show, but first, a story closer to home. Broadcast regulator Ofcom's issued a formal statement in response to complaints made about ITV and Sky News by the family of Nicola Bully. The family have said that they were contacted despite a public appeal for privacy after the body of the 45-year-old mother of two uh, was found on Sunday. I mean, Jamie, it's such a sad story. Have you been kind of keeping up on, on, on what's been going on? Yeah, I mean, you know, we do a daily news podcast. It's one of those stories we, we generally don't cover stories like this because they're, they're really sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but broadly speaking, there's, there's not a lot to them in terms of a news story. And this was obviously clearly different. And it's obviously horrifically sad. But it's, it's, it's created this weird fever dream that the whole country seems to have been in over, over it. And there was a really good piece in The Spectator about the press's relationship with the police and how it's deteriorated so much. And that's largely to blame for how we got where we got to. You know, there's no off-the-record chats between police and press anymore. That That's just gone by the by since phone hacking and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. But more than that, I think it's there's a, there's a genuine weird state that the public, that all of us are in, in terms of things like this it's blurred line between a true crime podcast and an actual woman that has died and gone missing mm. and her family terribly upset and distraught over over her whereabouts and and that's where we've seen people rocking up and taking selfies by the river we've seen people investigating it psychics turning it's just it's absolute lunacy it's crazy i mean you can obviously definitely understand why the family are, are upset I mean, you look at it for someone in the media and you also think the news organisations are also trying to do their job. Do you think they went too far with this or it's just had a family that, that said maybe what a lot of other people have thought if they're in the same situation? I think it depends whether it was, whether it was genuine lines of inquiry from the press or whether it was doorstepping. And I think that's where Ofcom will be looking closely at it. Is it right that a newspaper or a TV channel contact a family directly? I'm not sure it is. That's what police liaison officers are there for, to be that buffer. For people that have, more often than not, no experience of dealing with the press, no experience of dealing with the police whose emotional state is, is running so high, you wouldn't really want to speak, you wouldn't want, a, you wouldn't want a seasoned professional to speak in front of the press in that emotional state. So I'm not sure that contacting them is a great idea full stop you know it's just there's only one person that benefits from that story I mean the story's created a frenzy on social media as well as in the press but uh, Evan Harris the former director of the campaign group Hacked Off said there's one big difference between the people on social media who I condemn and newspapers that's the editor these purport to be an edited curated product therefore they can be regulated and they should be regulated it's hard to regulate a bloke in his basement I mean is this the sort of thing Paul that should be regulated or is it about common sense? Well it is about common sense but I think it's right to say there's a difference between a professional 
national broadcast organisation and an individual, you know, totally agree with Jamie that uh, there's been a feeding frenzy. But I'm not sure there's much you can do about individuals. But then, you know, it's a different relationship, isn't it? I think, you know, we want to be able to trust our professional media organisations. And if we believe that journalism is a profession worth pursuing, and I certainly do, we expect our journalists to deliver impartial and trusted news reporting. I think the fundamental issue here is whether ITV and Sky, who've both been named in this Ofcom issue, were insensitive in the sense that they were asked, we believe, to back off by the family. And then the question is whether they did or did not. And I think there's Mm. some question to answer there. ITV have said they'll cooperate fully. Sky News have have yet to comment. If indeed they did then uh, further contact the family directly, having been asked for privacy by the family, I think that does um, put into question the way in which they've operated as professional journalists. And I think Stuart Purvis, you know, the former editor of ITN, made a very interesting comment when he said, you know, we've not heard back from either news organisation, which makes me think that perhaps they haven't got the defence and and they know they have acted inappropriately. Uh, So I think it's essential that, you know, news organisations, which are professional journalistic organisations, do act in a professional and responsible way. And there are some questions to be answered here, I think. I think all of us know that both of the uh, press and the public would have been tempered had the information coming from the police been handled better. You know, I think that's where the frustrations have come from both sides, you know, really badly handled. You know, the alcohol and and menopause line was just one of the most appalling things I've read in a long time. Catnip to headline writers as well, sadly. And and it's no wonder they don't want to talk to anybody. I wouldn't imagine they see any real difference to ITV News or Sky News and someone off Twitter. You know, when, when when it's coming at you from all sides, how do you distinguish those trusted sources when actually there is very little trust there anyway? Yeah, no, I agree. I think the whole um, performance of the Lancashire Police is actually something that needs to be looked at. And, you know, not just the point that Jamie's just made but also you know some of the aspects of private life they revealed which were probably inappropriate and and, and too much disclosure I do think the way the police have handled this does need to be investigated because it's certainly a contributing factor to uh, the uh, the bad or inappropriate behavior by not only private individuals but also potentially some news organizations. Well, in other news, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's been taking a leaf from Elon Musk's book, launching paid verification accounts for Instagram and Facebook, starting at the uh, princely sum of $12 a month. Uh, The company's going to test the service in Australia and New Zealand later this week with more countries to be announced soon. Jamie, you've got ticks on both Facebook and Instagram. I got ticks coming out of every orifice, yeah. Would you pay for it? I I didn't ask for them. They've made no real intrinsic difference to my life, I don't think. I mean, maybe back in the early days of Twitter, there was some kind of, I don't know, hierarchy, some, or it, it was useful in terms of uh, when I was doing Big Brother and a few more high-profile TV jobs, you did get people impersonating you, usually doing a better job of it as well. But <laughs> So it, it did matter. Now Nowadays, though, it's kind of like I'm faintly embarrassed by it all, you know, especially on Twitter. You know, I don't look any different to to kind of people that are paying eight quid a month. I don't particularly like that kind of association. The problem I have with these is that I think they vastly overestimate how much people now cherish a blue tick. They mean nothing. If they, five, six years ago, maybe it would have been quite a coup. The only decent thing that Twitter offers is the edit button. And I've kind of even, and Elon Musk has just spoiled that, that feature for me. Now, I don't even want that. Um, 
with with Facebook, it's I mean, my goodness me, I think they they just don't know who their audience are, do they? They're, I cannot think of a single person aside from a business and a high profile influencer who should class themselves as a business who would pay for this whatsoever. There is no looking at the features list that is winding out. There's nothing in it. It's just, you know, featuring higher on search. My nan doesn't care about that. Do you think there's a slight issue in in people who, who want to be verified, who maybe are a, a combination of ego and a bit worried about impersonation and want to kind of sh- mm-hmm. to show up so people could find them? It's quite hard to get Facebook or Twitter to verify you if you haven't got kind of corporate links into those organisations. Is, you know, just yeah. checking your passport and giving you a tick, is that actually not not a bad solution to that problem? No, it's not a bad solution, but it, all it does is lower the status of being verified. It just means that you're verified in terms of you are who you say you are. That's absolutely fine. But what they're gonna what they're gonna quickly realise is that they've put the influencer level people, mm. the people who do care about that hierarchy and that social media status of having that blue tick. They're negating all of that in an instant. You know, Twitter have got the gold tick now for for businesses, and there's also like a weird greyed out lettering for official. No real information on how, you know, if I was interested in having the official tag, I've got no idea how I'll go about that. There's been, it's clearly that they're reaching out to people and and giving it to them rather than there being a two-way thing. The features don't benefit me, you know, exclusive stickers for Facebook, coins to pay creators. It's like 2001. Paul, I mean, there's obviously a bit of an ad squeeze at the moment in the digital world, even for, for Facebook, who, who hoovered up all the digital cash over the last few years. Is this a cash raiser for them or is it just to, to solve a, a moderation problem? No, I think it absolutely is a cash raise. And I'd sort of add a couple of extra points to, to Jamie, really. And that's I think there are people who do consider the blue tick to be useful particularly high-profile individuals, but also commercial partners, you know, advertisers and others uh, who might partner, have to have a way of deciding to whom they're going to partner. And I know, talking to advertisers, they do think of the blue tick as being one means by which they sort out which partners they're going to work with and which they're not. So here's the problem. If blue ticks become paid for, as is proposed here, it opens up all sorts of abuse. If you, for example, have someone impersonating Jamie or any you know, high-profile person, blue with a blue tick. The risk is that that person might then be seen as being the authentic representation of that particular brand or individual, particularly if the authentic person doesn't have a blue tick because they consider the, the benefits are not there. And that might well then attract revenue, partners, um, and effectively increase the monetization of what is a fake site. So I think paying for a blue tick is very, very dangerous and in fact encourages more impersonation and risks those who are the genuine article if they choose not to blue tick. So I see this as a very cynical move and completely a monetization by Meta that's going to produce no real value for high-profile individuals. I mean, it's interesting the difference between Twitter and, and Facebook's approach to this. Uh, I mean, Twitter's approach was Elon-driven, so unplanned all over the place and debunked by his staff before before it got going. And Basically, anybody could get a blue tick. Facebook or Meta adding a, a bit more security with, with uh, uploading IDs. Though it's interesting this week, you know, Will Ferrell has been in the UK this month. And last Tuesday, the real Will Ferrell tweeted, Sunderland, oh, the tears of sorrow you're going to experience tonight dripping down you, drawing you in sorrow, I can only imagine. And then following the game, uh, a verified official Will F, which was a fake 
kind of Twitter verification, wrote, Hawaii man, sorry, at Sunderland FC. And that apology tweet was picked up by the BBC as a as a story, thinking it was the real one because yeah. they didn't, you know, hadn't got to that point of checking, hovering over that blue tick and seeing if it's a real blue tick or a yeah. uh, or, or, or a fake one. I mean, there's, there's, there's still a lot of that uh, going on. It just devalues the whole, all of it. Exactly, it? exactly. A government um, ID, a passport or, you know, a driving licence, honestly, these things are easily faked. I mean, that is not really very secure at all. If that's the only real authentication that's going to be used to get a blue tick, it really does mean that almost anybody can get a blue tick, whoever they are. And I think that's extremely dangerous. It's a pure branding thing as well. They just haven't thought it through. If all that they were trying to do is is make it secure or for Twitter to add the edit functions and to increase your searchability and make you higher in the rankings, call it a pro account. Leave the blue ticks as they are. Put the gold ticks there for the businesses. That was a good idea because it separates kind of corporate from influencers slash celebrity status and have a pro account for people that want to pay for these additional features. It's really that simple. They've, they've, they've muddied the waters unnecessarily because of Elon thinking that everyone would pay for a blue tick. And actually, within 24 hours, having a blue tick became an embarrassment like mm. rather than, a, rather than an, a, an aspiration. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> I would pay my $9 to remove recommendations of Elon's tweets in my uh, Twitter feed at the moment. Uh, over to LA, there's been a reported warming of relations between China and Hollywood, and it's all being traced back to Disney. This is about Avatar, the way of the water, which has been running on screens uh, in China longer than normal. It's grossed over $240 million, uh, and other big flicks like Black Panther, Wakanda, Forever are also going to be opening there. Ben Smith, who's media editor at Semaphore, has written that China's Hollywood dream is back and describing the returning CEO to Disney, that's Bob Iger, as one of the most experienced navigators of the lucrative fraught trade between the US and China. Paul, Disney's your old gaff. What did you make of this story? Well, Bob Iger is a consummate networker and schmoozer, and he is very good at bringing people together. I mean, I remember when I joined Disney, we were trying to uh, greenlight a Disney animated cartoon for television of Toy Story. And it was the time when Michael Eisner was absolutely at odds with Steve Jobs, and uh, we couldn't get it. And the result was Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, which was a 2D version without Woody, which was sort of okay, but wasn't what we wanted, which was a a 3D version of Toy Story. Uh, Bob Iger came in, of course, and ended up buying Pixar, which was a brilliant move. And in fact, Bob Iger, you know, made some amazing acquisitions in his time. So going back, Disney was always wooing China. I mean, when, for example, Disney wanted to get movies into China 15, 20 years ago, uh, and the park was coming to what was then Hong Kong and now obviously Shanghai as well, there was a huge amount of work that went into wooing Disney with Disneyland Hong Kong. So uh, Bob is, is great at this. Why would Disney spend time on it? Well, they are the largest studio. They've got the largest market share of any studio worldwide in the US well over a quarter of the revenue so Disney have got the most to gain and the most to lose by not being in China the other thing to say is that the Chinese government have got to get the economy back you know they've been very late coming out of COVID compared to the rest of us and the Chinese love their cinema and you know if you look at the the top 10 box office numbers I'm sure you've done this you look in there and you go oh I know seven out of ten of those films but three of those films I've never heard of because they're they're Chinese films which have got in the top 10 just on Chinese box office alone. So Chinese box office numbers are huge and Disney wants uh, a share uh, of those. So the combination of the government wanting to get the economy going, 
Disney wanting to get back into China. And also, of course, Disney had a great story because when Bob Iger came in, you know, as well as saying, I'm putting storytelling back at the heart of the company, he announced he was going to go back to core IP. So he's already greenlit Toy Story 5. You know, he's greenlit Frozen 3. You know, these are proven brands that have worked in China before. So he can argue, I've got a pipeline that's going to work in your market. I'm not at all surprised that he spearheaded it. So I think it's real. Do you think his work and, and Disney's work will be good for other studios or other streamers? Or do you think it's it's locked down to, to kind of what Disney are doing? No, I think NBC Universal already getting some benefits. Sony uh, will too. I think that uh, it helps everybody. Disney's paving the way. I mean, Bob is, you know, he's just great at this sort of stuff. But no, all the studios will benefit from this. Jamie, um, if uh, suddenly China is interested in, in the Smart 7 and your podcasts, would you happily create a Chinese version? Or do you have any issues working with other countries? No, not at all. We've, uh, we've launched in Germany. We've got one in Ireland. We're talking to many, a fair few territories not too far away from China right now. I think the problem, you know, business aside, and Paul's absolutely bang on there in terms of in terms of the schmoozing in the boardroom. One of the one of the main problems I've always seen, you know, in my time as film critic at the Sun, was the fact that whenever. Hollywood tried to create something with China in mind, it was an absolute creative disaster. Like, awful, just dreadful, dreadful films. Avatar's a, a, a slight anomaly because it is it is kind of omnipresent. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a story that is there to suit. There was certainly a nod towards towards Asia as well. But it's it's inoffensive in terms of its messaging and, and content. Most Hollywood stuff is pretty offensive to China as a kind of communist <laughs> communist ruling country and their culture and customs. And you look at, you know, things like films that have been made specifically with Chinese money or with the China market in mind, things like Warcraft, which was made by Duncan Jones. There was an awful one. Matt Damon did one called The Great Wall in 2016. Just dreadful, dreadful creative mishmashes where nobody comes out winners. And, and the films that have, you know, in the past, over, over the past kind of couple of years, things like Uncharted, which was a huge kind of blockbuster over here with Tom Holland, Spider-Man, Eternals, Shang-Chi, all of those kind of films just haven't transferred creatively. So that is as much of a problem as anything contractual or legislative or anything like that is the fact that there is a real tectonic barrier there in terms of what a Chinese audience want from cinema versus what Hollywood is prepared to give them. And they sacrifice kind of uh, westernised Hollywood blockbuster content. Nobody comes out looking good at all. Well, Paul, as Jamie was saying, I mean, there is sometimes this clash. And I was reading a Variety and Tatiana Siegel wrote about the, the kind of the Disney-China Thor, but also noted that Disney's removed a Simpsons episode in Hong Kong, which suggests there's always a little bit of tip for tap quid pro quos. Is that acceptable? Is that an okay price to pay to, to push your business on to a, to a massive market? Yeah, I think so. And it's not just China. I mean, you take the Middle East, you know, for example, you have to take a lot of episodes out. Anything with anything that, for example, it hints at homosexuality has to come out without any question. But you still sell the series, but you take those episodes out. The same is true in other Muslim countries. And China's always been that way. I think it is, I think Jamie's right that the, the cultural sensibility of the Chinese audience 
audiences and what they require and what the Western audiences require are different. I don't think it's about necessarily an unwillingness to sacrifice or, or to cater to Chinese tastes. It is generally difficult because they are very, very different. The risk is that if you compromise, you end up with a camel, not a racehorse, which satisfies nobody. So that's the, that's the challenge. I do agree with what Jamie said. I think there have been some exceptions. I mean, for example, I would cite, you know, Mulan, the original animated version, which did very well in China and very well in the West. That actually did very well and was a, a useful groundbreaker for Disney in, in China many years ago. Kung Fu Panda did pretty well in China as well as in the West. But their films about their films about China. <laughs> you know, they're, they're featuring Chinese characters and they're very much, you know, has there been a Western blockbuster like Spider-Man, like a Marvel cinematic that has been successful in there? You know, James Bond or Mission Impossible. I'm not, I, I don't know is my answer, but I was just, I'm intrigued. If I, I don't been. think so. James Bond is too Western and too British, Mission Impossible too American. You know, the only way to make it work in China is you're going to have to adapt to some Chinese culture. I mean, the question is whether you can nudge in that direction without damaging the Western box office. And that's the game. I mean, you know, studios are always going to be looking at box office, aren't they? What's the maximum box office? And they're not going to sacrifice the US box office if the Chinese box office is, you know, is, is the prize. So, you know, it's a, it's a compromise. And some things will work and some don't work. I mean, you're right. If you put, a, you know, Jackie Chan, you're probably going to do better than if you don't. So just a yeah. quick look on Wikipedia, which obviously is the solution to, to, all, to all problems. The top seven highest grossing films of all time, all Chinese movies. Number eight uh, is the first Western one, which was Avengers Endgame. Uh, wow, okay. Picking, picking up support across the world and in China. But other than that, I mean, looking at trying to kind of go through this list uh, as I'm speaking, like then like number 20, The Fate of the Furious. But I guess that's partly driven by limited numbers of releases as well. And, and they definitely limit, don't they, what is what is allowed to be in those cinemas. So it's difficult to, to know sometimes what particularly what would work, though some rom-coms probably a stretch. Right, time for a short break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back after this to chat newsroom fashion plus a doco media quiz. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello. 
And we're back for part two of the media podcast. Paul and Jamie are still here. Hearing this week that BBC News presenters have been told that they can relax their formal dress code and look less like they've been at the BAFTAs and more like they've been out in the field. This is part of the kind of relaunch of the BBC News channel happening later this year. And was according to Deadline, Naja Nielsen, BBC News's director of digital, advised staff last week that this more rugged, sweaty and dirty look that certain journalists adopt away from the studio can make them more trustworthy. Paul, does swapping a blazer for a jacket going to turn the crisis of trust in the news media? Well, I don't know what sweaty and dirty means, really. I mean, you know, it could be that you've just come out of the gym, you know, and if you're going to turn up in your, you know, your sort of sweat-soaked sweatpants and T-shirt, I don't think that's appropriate in reading the news. I don't believe you have to be, uh, you know, dressed up in a shirt and tie. I don't think that is essential. But I do think you need to look presentable and, you know, smart, casual and appropriate and authentic. I mean, I think, you know, you need to dress in a way that, you know, you feel comfortable and the audience feels comfortable. But I would say that dumbing down to uh, the sort of gear you might wear when you're going on a long haul flight is probably not going to win the trust. I worry that the BBC is doing this in this sometimes obsessive sort of search for young audiences, which they are. I mean, I was talking mm. to some BBC executives this week. We were discussing it in the context of Radio 2. And, and you know, they're saying, you know, Ken Bruce said to them that uh, he was getting so many complaints from listeners saying, why are you playing records? I don't know. I want to play something that you do know that he, he decided to leave, of course, as we know. The result, of course, is that you're going to lose maybe older audiences, but not gain younger ones. And I don't know whether, um, mm. you know, people who are 25 or 35 would find someone wearing, you know, sweaty and dirty, more appealing and, and more credible with the news than, than, than maybe I would. I asked my two sons who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s, and they, they said absolutely not. They said, we don't want someone to look like they've come out of a, you know, an award ceremony, as uh, Naja quoted. But, you know, we do think a certain level of presentation is important because actually it's a distress distraction you know I go back to the old days of you know when Angela Rippon dropped her earring you know everyone was worried about the earring and not about the news story so there is something about making sure that the newsreader and you as the viewer feel comfortable and I think I understand the tone of it, but I think the wording is, is rather unfortunate. I think Naja has probably gone a bit too far. Jamie, when I, when I saw this, and obviously they're, they're trying to give the news channel a bit of a reboot uh, alongside, you know, saving some dosh. And I read most of the things and actually thought, kind of good on them for, for changing it up a little bit. They're going to do some more kind of presentation in the round from the newsroom, a few more kind of different points rather than just being kind of stuck by the desk. Do you know, actually is the right thing to do for a news channel? Or as, as Paul said, is there a little bit of a worry of throwing the baby out with the bathwater? I fundamentally agree with what they're trying to do. It's the Zelensky effect for me, is what it is. Mm. It's like you, mm. you, you, see, you see Rishi kind of almost turned on looking at, at Zelensky's hoodie, <laughs> thinking, why can't I look that manly? You know, it's that kind of thing. You know, Rishi turns up with his kind of cashmere hoodie with a white shirt underneath, and Zelensky's there with the rubble of the Kiev on his jeans. And there's a huge disparity between authenticity there. Mm. And, and I, th I think that's what it's, a lot of it is to do with. You know, I've grown up kind of like seeing sporadic reports, people writing in about, Poor bloody John Simpson reporting from Bangladesh, sweating buckets, but still having a shirt and, you know, someone has lightly undone his tie a bit and the people are in uproar. It's nonsense. BBC News, you know, I think the argument saying they're not going to attract any younger viewers is probably right. There's not People aren't going to go, oh, my God, that guy's wearing a Paul Smith T-shirt. I'm going to tune into this now. But these are the future generation. And, and actually, the people that are in their early 20s who don't really give a stuff about news now will all of a sudden have a mortgage in about five or six years' time 
and they will be really interested when there's a budget or when there's interest rate rise or whatever and will look for some authentic news. We are drawn to things that, that, that look like us and relate to us. The days of the old BBC, Queen's English and shirt and tie are gone. And I think actually an attempt to modernise the news is long overdue. It really is. Also, if you're standing in front of a desk, much more easy to cut for vertical. So to, ch- to chuck it on TikTok as well. Exactly. And also, you know, I don't I don't think people should be rocking up with gym gear and joggers and stuff like that. It's about, you know, I think news has to be authentic in the way it's delivered. And I also think that broadcasting is always at its best when you are talking to people in a language that they understand. And that language isn't always just audible language. It's it's in the way it's presented. So if someone is watching someone tell them something important, you need to feel like they're on your side and they're and they're part of your gang. I truly believe that because otherwise I always feel like I'm being spoken down to. I mean, Paul, we haven't really seen a sort of a proper news reboot since Kirsty Walk perched on a desk. And even, you could say, we've even gone backwards for, from that in, what, I guess, 97. So, you know, 20 odd, 25 years ago. Are, are we due for a bit of a, a refresh of how some of this stuff all looks? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I think it's quite nice that now, at least on the BBC, you see people's legs when they walk around behind the desk. You know, <laughs> you can see they're real people. I mean, because, you know, goodness knows what they're wearing beneath their waists before. I think this is an opportunity to uh, reboot. And it's right that you should review it. And of course, given they're merging these two channels together, I think uh, new innovations are absolutely essential. Uh, so I would welcome anything that's going to, as Jamie was saying, you know, make the news more relatable, uh, more connected. And we do want young audiences to watch. I mean, it worries me, in fact, that generally there's a move away from watching news on broadcast media. And I fundamentally believe in the importance of proper journalism, professional journalists telling the story in an impartial and well-researched authoritative way. And anything that's going to get audiences to watch the news, I think, is really important. So I would welcome innovation that achieves that. And, you know, I do agree also about authenticity. It's got to come across as being real, but it mustn't detract from the story. I mean, what matters is the journalism and the story and the message. You know, all the wrapping around it in terms of presenter clothes, set, you know, graphics, all those different things that you use to tell the story need to be there to help to tell the story. The story is central to the whole thing. There's got to be respect in there, hasn't there? You wouldn't want someone in a casual jacket announcing the death of King Charles, for instance. You know, I agree with that. And it's, you've got to, you wouldn't want someone at the scene of the Nicola Bully story dressed in jeans and a hoodie, you know. And one important point to make is also, it's a bit like school uniform. You know, there's a reason why kids are told to all wear the same uniform is because actually some people's versions of tasteful clothing are wildly different. So a suit and a tie is very difficult to go wrong. I would love to see kind of like the BBC News reporter's version of Smart Casual. Well, we'll get to see it uh, probably from April on the new BBC News channel. On, on a sign, actually, James Cridland, a friend of the pod, who's the editor of Pod News, shared a link to a BBC News branded website talking about how the BBC works to make people feel more favourable towards Huawei. And this is kind of part of BBC Studios and BBC advertising and some of the branded content that they did on BBC properties overseas and how that work achieved a 61% uplift for Huawei. So good news for them. But we're sort of back to talking about China and and some difficulties. I mean, it's difficult for the BBC, isn't it? They've got to make money. I'm sure that went through a million bits of clearance and that all of the work they did obviously was accurate. But it doesn't look good, does it, for them? I mean, that's a tough position. It it is a tough position. I do understand that BBC Studios 
wants to make as much money to put money back into the license fee. And that's the right thing to do and put it back into home services. I think the problem with this is it's not labelled as such. It's a bit like, you know, the old days of blurring advertising and editorial. You need to know when you're in editorial and when you're in paid for content. And this is not obviously paid for content. I have no objection to Hawaii paying BBC Storyworks, BBC Studios to create a website to try and influence people. But we should know it's paid and not editorial. Jamie, should they just say no to this kind of ad deal or do they they need that cash? Well, speaking as someone who themselves was sponsored by Huawei for, <laughs> think about think about two years, I do have sympathies uh, for, <laughs> for anybody needing to make a book. And there's a reason why Huawei get a lot of people to write about them and to, to be ambassadors for the brand or certainly did anyway. And it's the same reason why a lot of left-wing righteous journalists end up writing for the Mail Online. It's because mm. they pay about five times more anybody else than anybody <laughs> else does. It, it made me feel uncomfortable when I was doing it. I won't. <laughs> there's no denying that. I didn't like Android either. So I had to use an Android phone for two years, which was hell on earth. It's a difficult one if you've got to earn money. But I, I agree with Paul. You've got to label it. Whenever I did my, my contracted duties for my Huawei brand partnership, there was it was always hashtag ad it was these were in the days before you could get told off for it 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 was always hashtag ad it was always hashtag spawn i made it slightly cheesier than my normal posts would have been and made it very clear that you know someone was holding a a gun in the shape of a bag of money to my head you know there are ways of doing it i would say that it did feel like an advertorial but just in the way it was a very expensively made page, especially if you looked at it on your mobile device and you scrolled through it, it had all the lovely kind of um, all the lovely uh, parallax stuff was was going on there. Money that BBC would not have thrown at it had it been a regular thing. But I, you're right at the top. I think it had a Huawei logo at the top, but it certainly should have had advertorial funded by by Huawei there as well. Well, av- advertorials and live reads are, are always difficult, which is why I encourage all of our listeners to support us on Patreon. Patreon.com <laughs> slash MediaPod. Uh, if you sign up, you'll be supporting the show as well as getting access to lots of extra interviews. And by signing up, that'll stop me shilling for companies that maybe you don't like. So Patreon.com slash MediaPod. Right, that brings us to this week's media quiz. I've got three questions about TV deals that have been announced in the past week. Guests, if you know the answer, buzz in with your name. So Jamie, you'll say... Jamie. And Paul, you'll say... Paul. Right, here we go. Question number one. Who has acquired the global distribution rights to a series entitled Boris? Oh, that's that was... Uh, ba- uh, Jay. Jay. <laughs> <laughs> My old, my old partners in crime, Banerjee, ex-Endem, old Banerjee, whatever they're called now. Yes, that's correct. The Channel 4 series is going to be made by 72 films, chronicling the rise and fall of ex-Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And there's going to be quite a bit of Boris content over the next few years, whether we like it or not. Good deal for them, Paul? Yeah, I think so. Look, he's good box office, isn't he? I mean, the thing about Boris is amazing. I travel around the world all over the place and, and everyone says, oh, how's Boris? As if I know him. Of course, I've, I've, I've never <laughs> met him. But Boris is a global name and, and people are intrigued by him he's a personality so i think this will do very well okay a uh, point to jamie question number two which production company will make the short form postcards for the revision song contest Paul. this year oh that was close i think jamie just nipped ahead sheerwater media it's not paul windfall oh. films 
Correct. Ah, That's right. So these postcards, uh, as always, will introduce each artist showcasing their personality. And Windfall will also work the Ukrainian company, 2332, on the postcards. Jamie, it looks like everyone's doing a pretty good job trying to combine UK activity with Ukrainian activity. And obviously, they won the Eurovision Song Contest last year. It's good news, all that happening. It's very difficult to be unenthusiastic about anything to do with Eurovision. You're just not allowed to be. It's no longer naff. It's cool. You know, reading between the lines, I reckon we've got Ellie Goulding, Great Britain's uh, entry this year. The presenting cast is massive, isn't it? For the we've got, yes. we've got everyone from Claire Sweeney to Graham Norton's doing it, Mel's doing it, Ryland's doing it. I can't work out who's doing the kind of old Terry Wogan slot with the pints of Bailey in the in the VO box. I'm not sure who's going to be doing that yet, but there's loads of people. I was looking and like, who is going to be the one doing the bits in French? Is it Alicia Dixon? Please or... let it be Ryland. Please. <laughs> My all-time favourite Eurovision uh, moment was when we hosted it last time, and the person that did the the foreign language stuff was Arika Johnson, and they did it uh, with Terry Wogan from I think from the the NEC or from, from from in Birmingham. They're doing the spin round the world where they're getting all the votes in, and clearly Arika's been told, you know, move this along, move this along, and so it's looking kind of slightly panicked. Anyway, woman pops up, I think. From Germany. She goes, Oh, thank you, Birmingham. It's been a lovely show, all, all that stuff. She went, It reminded me of when I was doing Eurovision, and clearly this woman had, had, had been a host. And this woman was an older lady, and Ulrika just said, That must have been a long time ago. At which point, the whole of the NEC went, Ooh, as she quickly moved on. It's on YouTube. Go and watch it. A perfect. Oh, amazing. Strategy. That's great. And I mean, I hope we get an interesting winner because obviously, I mean, you've mentioned uh, 25 years ago, Matt. I mean, the winner, of course, in Birmingham was Dana International. So uh, yes. I hope we have an interesting winner this time in the UK. Uh, absolutely. Right. You've got a, a point apiece as we go into question three. This is uh, to win the quiz. Which Hollywood actor is swapping the stage for the director's chair to make a drama about a civil uprising Paul. in a small industrial town? Oh, Paul just squeezed <laughs> Michael in. Sheen. It is Michael Sheen. So this is a, a new BBC drama coming from quite an interesting triumvirate. It's Michael Sheen, James Graham and Adam Curtis promising to to tap into the social and political chaos of today's world. Jamie, that sounds a pretty good lineup for a, uh, for a show. Sounds good. And, you know, Michael Sheen's obviously fantastic in everything he does. And, you know, clearly over the past, I think, didn't he announce he'd retired from acting to concentrate on his activism? This seems like a nice hybrid. It's like, well, can you just act about all of the stuff that you're really into <laughs> instead? He's gone, yes, actually, I've realised that the mortgage is uh, still there. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll do my activism via the screen, which is great. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Adam Curtis is great. You know, he's very powerful, interesting mm. stuff. It would be great to see the two of them kind of lock horns. And it'll be filmed in Port Talbot, which is interesting, with Derek Ritchie, who I'm really interested in because obviously he was on Doctor Who and I think I've probably not missed an episode of Doctor Who since 1964, which is very sad. <laughs> That's not sad at all. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations, Paul. You've uh, won the quiz this week, which means you get a two-year deal with Huawei. Congratulations. Oh, fantastic. Can um, I get my phone <laughs> website, please, free of charge? You can. It won't work. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you uh, to, to both of you for joining us. Uh, Jamie, how can people keep up with uh, what you're doing? You can go and uh, you can go and download the Smart 7. The seven things you need to know every morning at 7am. That's it. It's uh, easy. Wherever you get your podcasts. And Paul, how can people keep up with uh, your uh, music? Oh, I say good old LinkedIn. Excellent. Thank you both. And we'll see you both thank soon. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of you for sticking through to the end of the show. We hope you enjoyed it. And as you know, as I mentioned before, jumping on our Patreon, one makes me feel warm inside as well as 
and supporting the team that work really hard to bring you the media podcast each week. The easiest way to do it is to go to Patreon, so patreon.com slash media pod. Lots of different options. And most importantly, it means that the, the little numerical ticker will go up to say that these reads have worked and that you deep down support the show. That's patreon.com slash media pod. And also, I remember we do look out for these. Please give us a plug on social media and help spread the word about the podcast. Say something nice or just retweet something we already say uh, over on Twitter or LinkedIn. That'd be really helpful. And if you're new to the show or you just uh, drop in occasionally, remember you can follow it on your favourite podcast app of choice or just go to podfollow.com slash the media podcast. My name's Matt Deegan. The producer is Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill. It's a Rethink Audio production. We'll see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.